Good morning. Grateful to be together with you this morning to unpack the Word of God together to see what He has for us all this morning. If you have your Bible with you, can you please turn to 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to spend the majority of our time in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. We're really going to look hard at three verses, and it's three short verses, but these verses have so much for us, so much for us to unpack this morning. So I'm going to read through them now in verse 56, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 through 58. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. These, this, these verses have been a very powerful influence in my life. They've, they've served to both convict and challenge, and at other times encourage and inspire. And so that's my prayer this morning, that God would use these verses to encourage us where we need encouragement but also challenge and convict us where we need that and that we would allow his spirit to work his power in us this morning. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to unpack the nature of and foundation for all that we do as Christians, all that we labor and strive to do throughout our Christian walk. So from the moment of your conversion until your last breath, everything we do in our Christian life, it has, it has meaning, it has significance, our laboring, our toiling, our striving, And the reason we know it has meaning is because God has said so. He has told us this clearly in his word. He has given us a clear picture of the driving force behind our laboring. And he has given us every reason to be steadfast, firm, immovable in gospel truth and given us a confident guarantee that our laboring in this life is not in vain. Okay? Now, before we unpack these verses, I'd like to help us understand their context a bit. I want to look at the the letter of the Corinthians from a 30,000-foot view, uh, and then also we'll look at chapter 15 immediately preceding our text this morning, just to give us context where these verses fit in. So 1 Corinthians, it's a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very spiritually troubled church, okay, So Paul had an occasion to write this letter. He had heard many things that were going on in this church. They had actually written him a letter, so he was responding back to them with this this letter. Many of the Corinthians, they lacked an appreciation for the holiness and the set-apartness that God requires of his people. Now, the city of Corinth, it it was an immoral city to live in. The society itself was very immoral. And many scholars actually compare it like to the modern-day Las Vegas of our time, the city of sin. Okay, sin was rampant within this, this first-century city. One commentator says, Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors. Okay, and I just want to give you an appreciation for what Paul was having to deal with in this troubled church. Okay, so if you look at chapters 1 through 4, what you'll find is Paul addresses divisions. He addresses their divisions over which Christian preacher they were choosing to follow. Some were following Paul, some were following Apollos, others were following Cephas, and then some were following rightly Jesus Christ. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul addresses the report of sexual immorality, 
a kind that not even the pagans would participate in. He also addresses different legal dealings. Some believers were taking other believers to court before non-believing pagan judges. Okay? In chapter 7 through 11, Paul addresses their confusion on marriage, divorce, the betrothed, widows, and then food offered to idols. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul further addresses their division over corporate worship, things like head coverings. Some were taking the Lord's Supper in a dishonoring way. We see that in chapter 11. There were divisions over spiritual gifts. Some were elevating certain gifts above other gifts, and they were fighting. They were divided over these spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 15, where we find ourselves this morning, Paul addresses their confusion on the resurrection itself, because there were some in the church who were claiming there will be no resurrection. Okay, And so Paul pushes back hard in chapter 15 on the truth and the fact of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, chapter 15, it's the last chapter before Paul's final closing and his admonitions in chapter 16, which is the closing of the book, chapter 16. And it's sort of like the way I see this is he's leaving the best for last. He's wanting to leave a very spiritually troubled church with gospel truth to come back to and to stand on, a firm foundation to stand on. So he gives one of the most condensed, hard-hitting versions of the gospel that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. If someone asks you, where do I find the gospel? The quickest, most efficient place is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Read along with me in verse 1 as I, as I go through this. Verse 1, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So in spite of all their rampant immorality and divisiveness that this church had, Paul brings them back to gospel truth. That Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scripture. On the third day, he rose from the dead and appeared to hundreds of people, many of whom were still alive when Paul was penning this letter. It's like Paul, he was actually urging the Corinthians to test him. Those who don't believe the resurrection will take place, go, go talk to those people that saw him alive after he was dead, and they will tell you what they saw, right? So after all the rebukes and the corrections from Paul throughout the letter, he finds it necessary to remind them of the gospel. The gospel is an antidote, okay? Now, whether this was Paul's main motivation for mentioning it here is hard to say, but what we can say is consistently recalling gospel truth is an antidote to divisiveness. It is, because we start to see the folly insisting on our own ways when we understand that Christ didn't insist on his, right, but humbly submitted to the will of the Father. We see the folly in our division, in our attitudes toward believers, when we understand the price paid to redeem those believers, okay? And we see the folly in our own sinful behaviors when we know the price paid by Christ for those same behaviors on the cross. The gospel 
in many respects, it is an antidote. It's an antidote to what, much of what the Corinthians were struggling with, and it can be an antidote to us in our time as well. The gospel is something we never get over, okay? It's the center of our Christian walk. We come back to it, and we should continually come back and meditate and let it sink into our hearts and try to really understand what it is Christ did for us because it's hard to get to the bottom of the gospel. It is. There's so much there. Now, Paul reminding them of the gospel in the opening verses of chapter 15, it's also the springboard for the rest of the chapter because he goes on to correct those who claim there is no resurrection. Okay, in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then after the resurrection takes place, Paul writes, and then comes the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then Paul goes on to discuss the nature of the resurrection itself. In verse 52, he says, The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Those are glorious truths, church. We shouldn't overlook those. And then, and then he finishes his thoughts with a seemingly bold taunt of death itself. Okay, look at verse 54. Look at verse 54. This is the second half of the verse. He says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In fact, Christ... This is... After everything Paul has just said, right... Let me just remind you that, that Christ has been raised from the dead, that many people saw him alive after he has died, that Jesus will destroy every rule, power, authority, and even death itself, the last enemy to be destroyed, that these perishable bodies must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. These truths have given Paul the boldness and the audacity to taunt death itself, right? Because death is not something we normally taunt, because death takes us all, right? But Paul knows there's more than just death. There's something after death, because Christ proved that. Christ proved that in the resurrection, and that's what gives Paul the boldness. He knows that. And so that sort of brings us up to speed on the context of our text this morning, both from the entire letter to the Corinthians, but also in chapter 15. So the rest of the time, what I'd like to do is really dive into verse 56 through 58. And I want to unpack the meaning here, and then I want to push hard and apply these truths into our lives this morning. I want to apply these to our lives this morning. Okay, verse 56, Paul goes on. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And so he takes a theological turn here, right? But this, is, this isn't a new theology, because this is classic Pauline theology that he uses in many other of his epistles in the New Testament. He addresses the relationship between sin, death, and the law. Okay? Now, we know from the early chapters of Genesis that the deadly poison that has led to death, right, is sin. Sin is the deadly poison that has brought death to all. It happened in the garden with Adam and Eve when they partake of the fruit, disobeying God's word and sinning against him. Sin is the deadly sting that has led to death. But on the other hand, 
And I really appreciated how one commentator put this. On the other hand, the weapon that death yields is sin. The weapon that death yields is sin. You can think of that as sin is the sting of death. Because it's not like we just die and we're gone forever into a sea of nothingness with no consciousness, right? We know that's not the case. There needs to be a reckoning. There needs to be a reckoning for our behavior in this life and for our sin. And there's the sting, right? There's the sting. That reckoning, it either happened at the cross of Calvary for many of us, or it will happen for all of eternity for others. Okay? But there has been and there will be a reckoning for every sin of every person who has ever lived on this earth. The second half of verse 56 says, The power of sin is the law. So what gives sin its power is the law. That might be confusing. How can, how can the law give something so wicked and evil power? Right? Because the law is good. It comes from God. It has his righteous stamp on it. Let me read from you uh, from Romans 7. I'll read. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. It gives you clarity on how the law can give power to sin. Paul writes in verse 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Do you see that? The law clarifies to us what sin is. It makes it clear that sin is sin, and when we see it, we see it everywhere. It's pervasive, right? It sort of uses that idea of what sin is, takes its opportunity, and seizes us. Okay? So the law is good. The law is right and displays the righteous character of God. Yet, it is what gives sin its power. We wouldn't know sin like we do if it were not for God's law. Okay? And the law is given by God, which, if we break the law, that demonstrates our actions are ultimately over and against God himself, which can lead to condemnation. Now, if you take a step back and you look at verses 56 through 58, you'll start to see a mini picture of the gospel itself. Okay, We just talked about the bad news. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, brings guilt, condemnation, death to all. That's the bad news, right? We have to, we have to wrestle with that. But what is the good news? Do we have any hope? Absolutely. What's the good news, Paul? Look at verse 57. Verse 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ, being raised from the dead, defeats death itself. And if death is defeated, and we just learned that sin has resulted in death, sin has been defeated as well. And if the law is what gives power to sin... Well, then we have been delivered from the law and are no longer bound by the law. Because Christ, who gives us the victory, he fulfills the law perfectly on our behalf. Okay, Christ's victory over these things is our victory. Christ's victory is our victory because we're united to him through faith. And if you're here this morning or you're listening online and you don't know what it means to have victory through Christ, It's simply the good news or the gospel, okay? God has a moral standard for all people. We just talked about his law in the Old Testament. That's part of it. Jesus Christ refined that and clarified that 
in the New Testament. Okay? And here's the bottom line. We all fall short of this standard. There's not one person who lives, other than Jesus Christ, who fulfilled this standard perfectly. We're all law breakers. Every one of us. Which means we're all sinners. And a holy, righteous God who is perfect in righteousness will judge. And because of our law breaking or sin, all people are guilty. And guilty people ultimately end up in hell suffering for their sin for all of eternity. Unless somebody intervenes. Okay? But that's not the end of the story. Because I, I said the gospel was good news. That's pretty terrible news. Right? That's not the end of the story. The good news is that God intervened. God intervened. In the fullness of time, in accordance with the Hebrew scriptures, he sent us a savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus was sinless, yet he went to the cross and is treated as a criminal, as if he he wasn't sinless, right? And in doing so, he paid the debt that we should have paid. Our guilt was placed on him, and his righteousness or perfect obedience to the law was credited to us. It's the great exchange. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus then rose from the grave. Paul said that in the beginning of his chapter, that 500 people saw him alive after he had died. And the salvation offered through Christ is a free gift. It's a free gift you accept through repentance for sin, a turning from sin, and trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting that he has taken those sins and removed them from you once and for all. Okay, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58 says, Therefore, therefore, and I'm going to stop with that because there is so much meaning in that one word. In light of everything we've just heard from Paul throughout the letter, Here, let me just remind you, Christ has been raised from the dead. People saw him alive. Jesus will destroy every rule, authority, and power. He'll put all his enemies under his feet, including death itself. And that Christ has given us the victory over all these terrible things, the things that have plagued mankind since the fall. Sin, death, condemnation under the law. We have been given victory over them all. And because these things are true, predicated on these things being true. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Those are the reasons we can be steadfast and immovable. Okay? And you might be asking, what, be steadfast in what? What is, what is Paul referring to? Be steadfast in what? Now, he's actually referring to the same thing that he opened the chapter with. This is just an amazing thing, how Paul ties this entire chapter together, right? We know the chapter breaks weren't there in the original Greek, but Paul, his train of thought is tied in a beautiful way together through this. So look um, at verse 1 here. Look at verse 1, and I'll show you this. Verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Okay? The stand there, sound familiar, it's corresponding to being immovable being immovable in verse 58. There's the parallel. And then he goes on, verse 2. He says, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast. That, that word hold fast has a parallel to being steadfast. 
in verse 58. Okay? To the word that I preached to you. And what is the word Paul preached to them? The gospel. Okay? So here in verse 58, he's coming back to the gospel and he's saying, hold on to, stay firmly rooted in, stand firm in the gospel. Be immovable. Don't shift from the gospel, from the hope held out in it and the promises that come along with it. And why can we be immovable and steadfast, Paul? Because Christ has given us this victory. He has given us this victory. Christ's victory is our victory. Therefore, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What comes to mind when you think the work of the Lord? What does that mean to you? What are we supposed to be abounding in? When you think of the word abounding, think of it as a plentifulness and abundance, right? What sort of work are we supposed to do for the Lord in abundance? Well, Gordon Fee, who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says this of what the work of the Lord is referring to. He says, Paul is referring to those kinds of activities in which believers engage that are specifically Christian or specifically in the interests of the gospel. Okay? The work of the Lord is just that. It's, it's God's work that we are partnering with him in, you, work that is uniquely Christian, right? Like serving the saints and in church or advancing the gospel. It's work the Lord is doing that he has graciously invited us to be a part of. And here's, here's the tough thing that I've experienced. Here's the clincher. Paul says to always. He says to always be abounding in this work. You can think of that as at all times. At all times, be abounding in this work. Not sometimes. Not just when we feel like it. Not just on a Sunday morning. But at all times, be abounding in this work. Do I do that? Do you do that? Right? I mean, how difficult is that? And then he ends with this. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The key key phrase here is in the Lord. In the Lord. Because if you're working and you're toiling and you're striving, it's not in the Lord or it's in something else. That labor from a spiritual sense, an eternal sense, is in vain. Okay, laboring in the Lord involves allowing God's grace to work in and through us to accomplish his purposes. Now, what does in vain bring to mind? I, I assume most of us here have a general understanding of in vain, right? It's one of the, in one of the Ten Commandments. I just want to read a few verses from this chapter to help give you a sense for what Paul means by in vain because he uses that same Greek word. The Greek word is kenos. And he uses that three other times in this same chapter, chapter 15. Okay, and it's translated as in vain. So look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. It says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Okay, now look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. It shows up twice 
in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So in verse 10, the grace of God was not in vain towards Paul. No, on the contrary, it produced something, right? Something happened, right? It had a result. What was the result? Paul worked harder than any of them through God's indwelling grace, preached. He preached. And by the grace of God, what was the result of his preaching? They believed, right? The grace of God was not in vain towards Paul because it produced a result. And then in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, Paul's preaching is in vain because it will be of no result. No one will be raised. And their faith will be in vain because it will not save. Right? It would be an empty faith. So in this context, in vain is simply an emptiness in one's actions or doing something without success or without result. Doing something without success or without result. So let's come back to verse 58. Let's just apply that. Verse 58. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor will not be without result. If you're laboring in the Lord's work, his grace working through you to accomplish his work, your labor will have results in this life or the next life. Okay? Your labor will have results. Your labor will not be in vain. But the counter to that, and this is the convicting part, the counter to that is also true because perhaps we're striving to serve ourselves in our labor or to serve someone else besides the Lord in our labor, right? That labor will be without a spiritual eternal result. And that labor will be in vain. So on that note, I'd like to transition to application this morning. Um, if you've been zoning out, I, I, I get it. Just look back up here because I don't want you to miss the application. This is so important for us. Okay, and I'll start with just a few short questions. You can answer these in your own heart. Okay, you don't have to answer to your neighbor. That might just be weird. Um, just answer in your own heart. Number one, how frequently are you abounding in the work of the Lord? How frequently are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Number two, if not the Lord, whose work are you abounding in? Because we all labor. We know we all labor. Who are you laboring for and for what purpose? And number three, are you aware of God's grace or his power? Think of that as his power working through you, causing and leading you to abound in his work and for his purpose. So when you examine yourself in light of these verses, can you say with confidence, you normally, no one does this perfectly, no one does this perfectly, but you normally and consistently labor in the Lord's work. You seek to glorify him in your striving. You seek to show love to Christians by serving them. You, you show love to the lost by advancing the gospel. Okay? If you answer yes, that is normally your mindset, then when you're doing these things, know, know for a sure fact that your labor is not in vain. Okay? Guys, this is, this is an inspirational groundbreaking truth 
for us. Let me just show you how. So what an inspirational truth this is for parents with young children. I need this more than anything in my life. Because if you're a parent with any, it doesn't have to be young, any type of children, right? And your heart's desire is to see them know and love Christ. To glorify him one day in heaven with all the saints. To continue in your labors and reverence to God and raising your children and pouring yourself out to them in love. I see this firsthand with my wife. The late nights, feeding a newborn, right? Wild kids that don't listen. The diapers, the meals. Don't stop abounding in the Lord's work at home and in your families. Because this is the Lord's work and you working in it is glorifying to him and it's not in vain, okay? What an inspirational encouragement for those who serve in the church because your labor is not in vain. Those serving in nursery, for example, some of you have no nursery age children of yourself and it's hard, it's hard. Know that your labor is doing something and the Lord is pleased with your service, okay? You allow parents And I know this because I have nursery-aged children. You allow parents to be here undistracted, hearing the gospel preached, coming under the word of God. You allow us to be sanctified under the word. You are furthering the faith of your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You're doing that. It may not seem like that when you're down there changing a dirty diaper, but you are growing the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is God's work, and your labor in it is not in vain. Those on the maintenance and the security teams, you allow us to gather in safety and comfort, to praise, to glorify God week in and week out. Your service to the saints and his church is meaningful. It's producing results. It's not in vain. The music team, evening practices. I know you come in early on Sundays to rehearse. God is glorified in your service because you are leading the congregation in joyful worship and praise of God. That glorifies him, okay? Your labor is not in vain. And I could go on and on from the elders to the deacons. I mean, some of you serve in so many different ways. I I know people who are teaching children's church. They serve in the nursery. They're on the music team. They do meal trains and Bible studies and home groups and serve coffee. I mean, I don't know how they do it. Wow. Wow. Your labor is not in vain. I'm actually reminded. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, the very next chapter, verse 15. He says this, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That reminds me of many of you in this church, how you have devoted yourself to the service of the saints. Thank you. Be encouraged because God's word says that your labor is not in vain. Now, some of you might be thinking, as I do at times, how do I know? How do do I know my labor is not in vain? You said in vain means producing a result. I'm not seeing anything. I don't see a result. It seems in vain. Just because you don't see the fruit of your labor does not mean you're laboring in vain. Trust God and his word that if your labor is in the Lord, it is not meaningless. In fact, many saints throughout scripture have labored continuously over years without a direct result. I'm actually reading through 
the book of Jeremiah in my quiet time right now. And he constantly warned the nation of Judah to turn from idolatry and to turn from their oppression, right? And what did they do? How did they respond? They threw him in a cistern, right? Be grateful your laboring is not getting you thrown into a cistern, right? That's, that's the kind of laboring result he saw in his lifetime, right? And here's the bottom line. At the time, his laboring may have been viewed in vain, in vain, but it actually displayed God's perfect patience, displayed God's perfect mercy toward his people, right? God was kind to warn them of judgment, They refused to listen, so they were ultimately exiled. But God was vindicated in his actions. And Jeremiah was abounding in the work of the Lord, even though he didn't get the result he had hoped for in his lifetime. We may not get the results we hope for in our lifetime. That doesn't mean there's not eternal significance to our laboring. And if the Lord gives us results in our lifetime, praise God. That's a a grace. That's a blessing from him that we don't all get. Now, I also find it interesting that Paul, at the end of chapter 16, or excuse me, the end of chapter 15, he leaves them with that verse. He says, you're laboring the Lord is not in vain. He leaves them with that. And I have to imagine there were some in the Corinthian church who were laboring to turn the church from its immorality, who were laboring to teach clear doctrine and to to clear up theological confusion, right? Right? but perhaps they simply viewed their laboring as being in vain because nothing was changing in the church. Paul says otherwise. God says otherwise. Trust God. Trust his word. Continually go back to this. When you're weak, you're weary from serving, you're tired, your kids, they're not saved. Are they ever going to be saved? When nothing seems to be changing, remember, in the Lord, your labor is is not in vain. We cannot forget that truth. Let me go back to my original application questions. How frequently are you abounding in the work of the Lord? And is it clear to you and others that God's grace, his power, is working through you, causing you to abound in his work? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, but you've answered not frequently, or not at all, or, I just, I don't know. I'm just not sure. Just consider for a moment, a moment whose work you're abounding in. Because if you're not seeking to glorify God, to advance his kingdom, to serve his people, then who are you laboring for? In fact, what are, we do, what are you doing with your time? And I'm speaking this to my own heart as well. What are we doing with our time if we're not doing the work of the Lord? If you're laboring for yourself, your own glory, your own interests, your status, your wealth, your power, your advancement, that laboring from an eternal sense is totally in vain. It's in vain. It will have no eternal result. Have you been grieving the Holy Spirit by not following his promptings to abound in the Lord's work? Are you seeking to love unbelievers by sharing Christ, serving the saints in life and in the church? Why not? If this is you, and I'm speaking this to myself as well when you hear this, if this is you, plead with you earnestly to seek God's forgiveness, to repent, and to pray 
that we may all abound plentifully and abundantly in the work of the Lord. Remember, church, the upshot, the upshot of all that we do should be tied to God, to His honor, and to His glory, and for His purposes. Everything we do. I know that sounds extreme, but that's what the Scripture says. Everything we do. You know, I don't want to make the sermon really about me, but I have an example, a personal example, that I think is fitting in this, in this area. Many of you know I didn't come to faith at a young age. I came to know Christ in my mid-20s which means the decisions I was making from high school through college to early adult were very selfish, motivated decisions. They weren't in accordance with the revealed will of God and Scripture. They were in accordance with what I wanted. I was seeking to acquire wealth. I was thinking to advance in career. I wanted status. I wanted comfort. And then I met Christ. And I began to understand but that's not what he calls us to. And there's a huge contradiction the way our flesh wants us to go and the way God calls us to go. And I had sort of a young, early life crisis because here I was in a career, in a place in my life that was all what I viewed as brought to a point based on selfish motivation. And what was I to do? I actually thought about quitting and giving it all away and going to serve as a missionary in a third world country. I scared my wife in a big way. Um, But the Lord began to show me there are ways we can be faithful and abound in his work in a faithful way right where we're at. Okay, He doesn't make mistakes when he saves us. He has you right where he wants you with the people that you interact with every day in your job and at work and at home, at at the store. And I began to realize I can, there are people who don't know Christ and where I'm working. I can use the resources God has given me to advance the gospel, to support the church. I can take more of my time away from the hobbies that I once loved and serve more faithfully in the church, which is an important thing to God. So we can all abound in the Lord's work no matter where we're at. We don't have to be super Christian missionaries. Okay? That's not how God calls us all. We can be faithful where we're at. I'm reminded of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Some of you might be thinking, so what? Why do I need to be concerned with abounding in the Lord's work? Like, why make this such a big issue? What does it matter? I'm saved by faith. I'm going to heaven I'm good, right? Not only are our good works and our abounding in the work of the Lord evidences that we're truly born again, but heavenly rewards are in store as well. In fact, this is a hard truth, but our labor will be revealed and tested in the last day. And everything not done for Christ and his purpose and glory will be burned up. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. I'd like you just to follow along as I read this text because it's, a, it's an important text related to this and I just want you to feel the gravity of it, how seriously God takes our Christian service. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, capital D, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Those verses are a demonstration of God's grace. He's warning us. He's warning us that our work in this life will be tested. And this is his reality. I didn't make this up. This is how he designed it. This is how he designed this walk and that there will be rewards and loss in the next walk based on our Christian service and how we follow his word. So some will suffer loss. Others will receive a reward. God takes our Christian service seriously, and we should as well. We should take that seriously as well. Lastly, if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you're, or you're online and you haven't trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sin, I just want to say thank you for coming. We're glad you're here. We're excited that you wanted to see what it is Christians do on a Sunday morning. Okay, so thanks for coming. But I actually think these verses apply to you as well. Look at verse 57. Paul writes, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want to be harsh, but I also want to speak truth here, okay? The victory through Jesus Christ part. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have the victory. You don't have that part. Which means that therefore, in the next verse, 58, doesn't apply to you either because the therefore is predicated on having victory through Christ. And if you don't have the therefore, that simply means you're laboring and you're toiling and you're striving in this life from an eternal spiritual sense is in vain. Whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter if it appears morally good or righteous because you're not doing it through faith for the glory of God, through the power of the Spirit and for Jesus. It's in vain. In fact, there's actually a bigger problem. For those who don't know Christ, your sin is still on you. The wrath of God is still on you. You do not have peace with God, you actually have enmity with God. Because peace with God only comes by way of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of sin. Jesus is the only way to have everlasting life. Jesus is the only way to ensure our laboring in this life is not in vain. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just bid you to speak with me or one of the other elders after this service. And I would just encourage you, don't wait another day. Figure out who Jesus is to you. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, so let's be firm. Let's stand firm. Let's be immovable, steadfast, in gospel truth. Don't shift from the gospel. God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. His victory is our victory. And just to be frank, this life is so short, right? We may live 50, 60, 
70, 80 years if you're lucky. And then we die. All of us die. And then what? We have eternal joy in heaven with Christ forever. Eternal joy with heaven and Christ forever. We have no idea how glorious and amazing that will be. We don't even have categories in our minds for how amazing that will be. So in this life, which is short, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, pour yourself out in service to Christ. What are we all waiting for? Let's leave nothing on the table, labor for his kingdom, his glory, devote yourself to the service of the saints, devote yourself to the service of the lost through gospel ministry. Let's not let our labor in this life be in vain. Okay, I'm just going to end on a few short stanzas of a poem. This is a poem that I go back to quite often. I rehearse it to my wife. I think she's tired of it, but it's such a good poem. It's written by a guy named Charles Thomas Studd. You may recognize him as C.T. Studd. Okay, so he was a 19th and a 20th century missionary. And, but before he was a missionary, he was actually one of the best cricket players in all of Britain. That's what he did. He played cricket professionally. He was like the best. And he decided to give up the sport and give away a large inheritance that his father gave him. And he signed up to be a missionary to China, India, and Africa. And I'm not saying we need to do that, but he wrote a poem here that has such a depth of wisdom on this topic that I think we all would like to hear. It doesn't matter where you are in this. Just please don't overlook the wisdom in this poem. He says, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying... How happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.